Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your church. Whether it be your church dating back even to these days of Acts 2 and beyond, or whether it be Calvary Presbyterian Church in Flint, Michigan, where for 70 years now you have been faithful in building this church up, in guarding this church, in protecting this church, and sustaining this church. We thank you. We long to be the church that you would have us be, and so we pray that you might speak to us this word through your word, through your message, through your truth, given to us in this passage of Scripture. Speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the church supposed to look like? It's a good question, because there are so many different kinds of churches, churches that look like all sorts of different things. There are different size churches from from mega churches that that have tens of thousands of members on down to little house churches of two and three families that meet together in private homes. There are different worship styles, churches that are what we might call very contemporary in their worship style, very different than what we have here, a, a more traditional service. And then there are others still that are blended between the two. There are different kinds of architectural structures within the church, aren't there? There are traditional churches with steeples and, and pews, and, and then there are churches that look more like maybe a, a, a warehouse uh, with a coffee shop in the front. There are different structures. But when you get right down to it, what the church is is not dependent on its size. It's not really dependent on its worship style. It's not dependent upon its architecture. The church is really the people. The people who are members of the church, the people who God has brought together to be that church. And so if we want to ask what is the church supposed to look like, it's not really looking to those other things, the size, the the structure, the style, but rather looking to the people, how they act, what they do, what they look like in their lives. And we see in Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, a whole lot of information that helps us answer this question. What is the church supposed to look like? One word of caution. We must realize that when we read through the book of Acts, and specifically when we read through this passage, it is a descriptive passage. That means it is describing something that happened. It's not so much a prescriptive passage, prescribing what we are to do, like in Paul's writings when he writes to a church and says, do this, do that, do this, do that. We're supposed to do this and do that. Here, Luke is writing. He doesn't write saying the church should be like this, but rather says the church was like this. He is describing history of what occurred. So we want to be careful. We don't want to say just because this and that happened in this passage, we need to have this and that just like them. That being said, 
There are many wonderful principles that we can glean from this passage, many truths that undergird this passage that we can and should apply to our own life as a church. And what we see when we look to it, first and foremost, I think, is a pattern, a pattern of sharing. I actually have a a sermon outline that I put in the bulletin that, that is pretty detailed, but you'll see it on it if, if you look at it, speaks of a, a pattern of sharing, and you might want to follow along on that as we go through today. But first of all, we see a shared devotion mentioned in verse 42. I say a shared devotion, and this devotion was to certain things that characterized the worship of the people of God, the lives of the people of God as they gathered together. And first of these was the apostles' teaching. Now you'll recall that this was something that the apostles were were given so that they might share it. There were truths that they were given. Jesus, in Matthew 28, told the apostles that they were to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all that he had commanded. He's supposed to teach them. And then in Acts 1, just a chapter before today's text, Jesus is speaking to the apostles before, right before he ascends. And he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will teach. And so we want to understand what exactly was the content of the apostles' teaching. What exactly was it that Jesus wanted them to teach, to share, to tell others about? That's of paramount importance to us. We need to know what it was exactly. And so a good place to start is to look at what the actual apostles did teach. And as Steve mentioned before, this passage right here comes right after Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And so what we have here is we have an apostle. We have an apostle who is teaching. And so we can look at that sermon that he gave and say well what was the content of that sermon what was if we boiled it down the truth that he was trying to share and I think there are two main points in that message one of them Jesus is Christ you know Christ isn't Jesus last name it's a title it means Messiah anointed one You see, dating all the way back to Genesis 3, God had promised that one would come who would crush the serpent's head, one who would break the power of sin, one who would win victory for the people of God, and they would be able to share in the spoils of his victory. And he was the one anointed of God, the Messiah, the Christ. What Peter says is, Jesus is this Christ. If you are to have victory over sin, if you are to have freedom from its power, if you are to have freedom from its penalty, it can be found in no place other than in Christ Jesus, in his holy life, in his sacrificial death. That is the only place it can be found, and that is what we mean when we say Jesus is Christ. He has died for our sins, and we can have forgiveness only through him. There is no amount of good works we can do, no, no moral uh, ability that we can exert that will make us right with God. 
We can only be saved by and through the work of Christ Jesus. Jesus is Christ. The second main point that Peter makes in this message is Jesus is Lord. You see, it's not enough for Jesus just to be Christ, to give intellectual assent to this fact that he died for my sins. What, what I need to realize is that has to have an impact on my life. I, I, I need to realize that Jesus not only died for my sins, he not only wants to bring me forgiveness, he also wants me to follow him wholeheartedly. He wants me to give my whole life to him. You see, there is no saying that Jesus is Christ without saying Jesus is Lord. The two are connected together. We can't have Jesus as Christ if we don't follow Jesus as Lord. And so Peter says, he is Lord. He is the one who should order our lives. He is the very Son of God. And so Jesus is Christ and Jesus is Lord. We must take him as both. They go hand in hand. And that is the doctrine that he is sharing. And we must realize that doctrine matters. Some people say, you know, Jesus unites what doctrine divides. They say things like this. And we need to be wary of that. I I interviewed with the church once, actually, before I came here, back eight years ago. And they had uh, a thing printed on their bulletin when I got there. And it was uh, a motto, if you will, of their church, I guess. But it said, no creed but Christ. And, and I had problems with that. I still have problems with it. We should have problems with that. It's very well-intentioned. It sounds good, doesn't it? No creed but Christ. Christ is our only creed. He is what we believe in. He is, he is where our belief is focused. That's a good thing. But when you think about it, there are a number of problems with this idea of no creed but Christ. We today... Read through the Apostles' Creed. It's a good creed. It affirms many biblical truths. We should be willing to affirm those things. If I say no creed but Christ, here's the first problem. That statement itself is a creed. What is a creed but a statement of belief? And that statement is, well, we should have no belief but this. That's a belief in and of itself. It is a creed. It's saying, I believe this is what we should believe. And so it, just on its face, is a self defeating statement it is a proposition that falls under its own weight but even beyond this if we look past that we look at some of the problems with this statement one is i believe it it tends to push us toward individualism you see when i say no creed but christ it's just really about jesus and me it doesn't really matter what all these people have said before it doesn't really matter what other people say today i don't need to come under any other leadership, under any other authority. It's all about Jesus and me. But see, this is not how God has instituted his church for it to be just a lot of individual Christians. But rather, he has instituted a church. He has built a church. He has put together a church and ordained it such that we would be part of a body. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You see, we're not to be just about Jesus and me. A relationship with Jesus as Christ and as Lord necessarily means a relationship with other individuals as part of the body of Christ. And so, one other thing that this idea of no creed but Christ kind of undercuts is is the idea that, that we have a relationship with Christ. You see, because... It's one thing to say, I I have a relationship with Christ, or even, I love Jesus. But if we don't know who Jesus really is, and what we are to believe about him, then this is really a shallow love. It's a hollow love, is it not? For instance, I could say, I wanted to get my spouse, my wife, a wonderful gift, because I love her so incredibly much. And so I think, well, what can I get for her that will express my love to her? And I think, aha, I've got it. The greatest gift anybody could possibly ever give, season tickets to Major League Baseball. (laughs) She will know for sure how much I love her because I give her this and then we can go to all the games. And she'll just love that. It'll be great. We'll spend all of our time on it, all of our money on it. Everything will be about Major League Baseball, and she'll just know I love her so. No, she won't get that, will she? (laughs) Because you see, as much as I love my wife, she is misinformed in that she does not love baseball like I do. But if I were to think that the way to love her is to just give her the things that I think are wonderful. See, that's not loving her at all. Because loving her necessarily means and involves knowing her. And so it is with Christ Jesus. How can we say we love Christ Jesus if we do not know Christ Jesus? And so it is not enough to say, no creed but Christ. We need creeds. Creeds say what is true about Jesus. We need doctrine. You see, because the truth of Jesus Christ and of Christianity is not just moralism. It's not just a moral code, an ethical set of rules. But rather, there are certain truths about Jesus, about who he was and what he did that if we take them out, Christianity ceases to be Christianity. And so it is that we must know him just as we must know a spouse. And it's interesting because what is the church but the bride of Christ? And so if we are to love Christ, we must love him as we love a spouse. It's interesting Isn't it? Even when we look in the very first pages of Scripture, when Adam and Eve come together, what is the language that God uses in his word? Adam knew Eve. That is the 
deepest kind of love is a love that that involves true knowledge, full knowledge, nothing hidden, nothing obscured. We must know Jesus for who he is. We must be devoted to the apostles' teachings. We also must be devoted to fellowship. Uh, Fellowship, and don't worry, I promise you we'll move more quickly through the rest of these. You see this daunting list here, and you're doing the math. I can see it in your minds now. Wait a second. If he spent this amount of time, I had dinner plans tonight. (laughs) Don't worry. Devoted to fellowship. The idea of fellowship is just to share in common with it. It means to share together in life. It's a shared identity, a a shared spirit. And that's why they shared things with one another, was because of this shared identity, this shared spirit. In Acts 4, we read, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You see, they didn't just talk the talk, they actually walked the walk. The gospel had an impact on how they lived life. It changed them. Has the gospel changed you? Has its truth changed you? Has it made you into a new creation? Not just in your eternal standing where you're going to go when you die but but does the gospel have an impact on how you live life on a daily basis does it make you want to be more generous more gracious more kind more loving because God has been gracious and kind and loving to you through Christ Jesus it should and it caused them to have this kind of fellowship not a forced thing not not a communistic type thing where they were told that you must give all you have to this and, and it will be shared widely. No, but a, 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 a generosity of spirit that was desired, that was longed for, that they wanted to give because so much had been given to them. And then there was the breaking of bread that they were devoted to, as Steve mentioned before. This is none other than Communion. Sharing in the Lord's Supper, which we will do just next week. We know that it's that, as we look at this, because of one little word. It doesn't just say, they gathered together for breaking of bread, but the breaking of bread. You see that little article there actually is kind of an indicator that this is a specific meal that's being talked about, not just any meal in general. Later on in the passage, it will talk about breaking of bread, and it is speaking just of meals in general in that place. But here, the breaking of bread, it is a specific thing that happens in the context of worship. Next week, I will, I will say those familiar words. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We see here in the early church that they did do this in remembrance of him. We will join together next Sunday and do this in remembrance of him as well. We will join in the breaking of bread. And we also see a devotion to the prayers. Again, We note that article there, which points out that this is not just saying a devotion to prayers in general, 
although we should be devoted to prayers in general, but specifically the prayers. It's speaking about the prayers that were part of the service, the prayers that were said, for, for instance, just as we proclaim the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, we share in that prayer, and that gives us a great model of prayer. That is what Jesus' disciples came to him, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, pray like this. And so it's not so important that we memorize those very words. It can become easy to just be a rote recitation, can't it? Perhaps I've shared the story before, I don't know, but there was a story of two monks that were talking about the Lord's Prayer, and one of them said, I, I, I bet you, and I don't know that monks make bets, but it's a story, let's stay with it. Uh, he said, I bet you, you can't say the Lord's Prayer without your mind wandering. And the other monk said, well, surely I can. After all, I'm a monk. And he said, okay, well, well, uh, I bet you $100 you can't. Okay, sure enough. And, and, and he says, you know what? I, I think I got a problem. We can't bet, bet money. I know that's wrong. How about we bet a horse? Okay, okay, we'll bet a horse. That's good. I don't know why that's better, but it is. Anyway, let's bet a horse. And the guy said, okay. So he started praying the Lord's Prayer. And he said, our Father, who art in heaven... I wonder what kind of horse. <laughs> you see, it's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to just memorize these words. I have to actually, I have to train myself. You see, I grew up in the, the Lutheran church when I was younger. And, and in Lutheran churches, they don't have debts. They have trespasses. <laughs> and so, so I had memorized it, you know, we to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a whole lot of S's, and it's, you know, if you have a lisp, it's very hard. But, so now I have to really concentrate, because as a child, that's how I memorized it. But see, we, we should always be concentrating. No matter how we've memorized it, we want to think through these things as we're praying together. We want it not to be a rote recitation, but rather a heartfelt prayer. May it be that way for us always. So they shared in this devotion toward these things. There were other things that they shared, though. They had a shared awe. Remember, there are miracles which are occurring. Verse 43 says, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. There were wonders being done, miracles being done. Amazing things. And we might say, well, wait, there, I, I don't see miracles like that here. Why should I be in awe? Well, we need to remember that though we do not see the same miracles, perhaps, we still worship the same God. And just as the Spirit of God was at work in the people of God, exhibiting the power of God. So the power of God now works through the people of God by means of the Spirit of God. So we should be awed by that fact. We should be in awe of the fact that God is at work in our midst, that he would deign even to, even to know us, to allow us to exist is an amazing thing, much less that he would use us for his purposes, much less that he would, he would reside in us, that he would indwell us. It should cause us to be awed. And it's not just God's power at work, but the fruit of his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things 
are the fruit of his spirit. They should be at work in us as well. These are kind of like the things that we see here at work in Acts 2, aren't they? God is at work. He is the one who brings about this change in us. He is the one who creates a desire to share these things. He is the one who does that. May it be the case in our lives. May we be awed by this God. You know, we need to be awed by Jesus, by who he is, by what he's done. Sometimes I fear that we think of Jesus just as our buddy who kind of, you know, makes us feel good about ourselves. But that is a wrong mindset. I like what John Piper has to say. He says that nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to improve their self-esteem. So true. As you're standing there at the edge of the canyon, looking at its majestic beauty, its magnificent greatness, you can't help but feel small. When we look to the God who created the Grand Canyon and all other things, we should be awed. We should realize his greatness and not think about our own. And this should produce not only awe, but humble generosity, because he has given us so much that we did not deserve. As I mentioned, this was a voluntary sharing of possessions that we see in verses 44 and 45. These people believed that all that they had was theirs as a matter not of ownership per se, but as stewardship. It would all belong to God. And so they were willing to share it with one another, to use it for God's purposes, because it was actually God's in the first place. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Do you believe that all the things you own, all the money you have, all the talents you have, the abilities you have, the skills, even your time, are not really yours, but are God's and are on loan to you that you might use them for his glory. Do we believe that? I know in my day-to-day life I might profess to believe that. The reality is in my actions I do not always believe that. And I'm sure the case is the same for you. Let us realize that that is the truth. Let us, by the Spirit's power, believe that, not only in our minds, but in our hearts and in the way we live our lives out. For God is the owner of all things indeed. In verse 46, we see that they shared in gatherings. And and we might think that what this is talking about as they gathered in the temple was for worship. And that's what almost every commentator says. I, I look through probably six or seven different commentators, and they all said that this is talking about them gathering together for worship, for they still considered themselves to be Jews, and so they would gather in the temple. One commentator, though, John Calvin, you may have heard of him, uh, had a different take on it. And I think Calvin might have been right. He said, we must note that they did frequent the temple for this cause, because there was more opportunity and occasion offered there to further the gospel. Neither were they drawn with 
the holiness of this place, seeing that they knew the shadows of the law were ceased, neither meant they to draw others by their example to have the temple in any such reverence, but because there was a great concourse of people who, having laid aside their private cares, wherewith they had been drawn away elsewhere, did seek the Lord. They were continually in the temple that they might gain such unto Christ. You see what Calvin's saying is, is they gathered in the temple, in the temple courts. We've got to realize the temple was not like a church building. It was actually a whole district almost with a giant building, yes, but then there were gates and courts and outer areas. And, and so as they gathered there, most likely in the outer areas, they gathered there because there were other people there, the people coming there seeking the Lord, and they knew that if they went there, they could share the truth of the gospel with those people, and those people who were seeking the Lord might find the Lord through their message, through their example, through their sharing the truth of the gospel. And so it is that we would do the same, share the truth of the gospel with others, wherever they are, where it is that they normally go. It's, it's not a matter of trying to drag somebody to some place that they wouldn't go to otherwise, but rather go where the people are. Meet them where they are and share the truth with them. And then invite them to be a part of your life, sharing even in meals, as we see in verse 46. They shared in meals together, breaking bread with one another. Table fellowship, what a blessing it is. We'll join together, not in our house, but around tables a week from Wednesday, as I mentioned, for one Wednesday. Again, I urge you to try to be there on that night for that time of fellowship with one another. This they all did for a shared goal, that goal being the glory of God. That is their goal. They wanted to bring God glory. They wanted him to be exalted. They wanted him to be magnified. And this should be our goal as well. This should be our goal. We say, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this is the work that we are about. And very quickly now in closing, what happens to a church as a result of this type of life? Of this pattern of sharing? Well, it's a result of blessing. The Lord blesses this type of life. Not because we deserve it, but because it is the appointed means by which he desires to pour out his blessing. And so it was that they had favor with the people. The community around them saw the beauty of their lives. They saw, saw the way that they lived life. They took notice. And they were attracted by that. Do your neighbors take notice of the attractiveness of your life, of the beauty of your life as you follow Christ Jesus? We see here this echo, perhaps, even of Luke 2, where he says of Jesus when Jesus was his young boy, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. So it is that the church grew just as Jesus grew in size as God increased its size. And it grew in favor as well with God and with men. The Lord adding to their number. I will build my church, Jesus says. And so indeed he did. He is building it even today. He added to their number, not just adding to the membership roles just so they could pad the roles, but adding to their number those being saved. Those who have 
trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation, those who have moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, those who no longer are lost but are found, those who no longer are dead but are now alive. May we be the kind of church where this happens where people are drawn here, they come here, they see the lives that we live, the beauty of our lives as we follow Christ. They come and they, they join this fellowship, they become a part of it, but most of all, that they are saved. In Acts 2, we see a church sharing a unity of identity and purpose. May we have a similar identity, a similar purpose. And in so may we know that we are God's people. Please pray with me. Lord, be with us to that end, that we could truly say that others who watch us would surely know that we are God's people the chosen of the Lord, born of his spirit and established by his word. Be with us to that end for our good, but especially for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.